Welcome to Numbers Study number 24. We are planning on going through the entire chapter of 25 verses. And we'll pick up right after we send out a hillbilly holla out to Matthew Reiner down in the state of Virginia. Matthew Reiner, here's your hillbilly holla. And I've got family down in Virginia. My wife's family hails from the Blue Ridge Mountains. And we've gone to Virginia Beach a number of times on vacation. And we love the state of Virginia. So there's your hillbilly. He might be a real authentic hillbilly down there. You never know. Uh, I'm a transplanted hillbilly. But with that, uh, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer and get into our Bible study in Numbers 24, 1 through 25. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time of study. We thank you so much for teaching us. Thank you for all the people who have written in and told us what they're learning or just thanked us. And It's good to hear from folks. We don't need uh, to hear the thanks, but we appreciate hearing from folks and hearing that they're thankful. And we give all the glory to you. And we just pray, Lord, that everyone listening will be a Berean, test everything that they hear from me, believe your word, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by learning every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of God from Genesis to Revelation in our King James Bible. Thank you, and we praise you in all things and in this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So we will now finish the Numbers account of Balak's attempt to bribe Balaam uh, in order to get him to curse Israel in spite of the fact that Balaam has said he can only speak what God tells him to speak. Um, however, it's really interesting. Uh, this chapter ends with a twist and chapter 25 begins with a twist. Of course, we'll unravel the twist when we begin our study of Numbers 25. But first, we pick up where for a third time, Balak and his entourage of the uh, princes of Moab have erected seven altars, and they've offered seven bullocks and seven rams on each, uh, or on all those altars. Uh, There'd be a total of 14 sacrifices, but this is the third time. So uh, that would be uh, 42 animals offered in total. And we uh, pick up in verse 1, And when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not as at other times to seek for enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness. There's nothing more pathetic than a preacher running from God. Even backslidden preachers like Balaam, obviously, we're going to see is. Um, but it's especially pathetic when that preacher simply doesn't want to preach the truth of God's word. Some guys, you know, they may run for different reasons. Uh, they may uh, be burnt out, as we uh, hear about a lot. There's nothing wrong with taking some time off, don't get me wrong. But to run completely from the ministry over that, that's sad. They'll run because they have a bad marriage. Uh, some have been conv convinced that if they get uh, divorced, they're disqualified from the ministry, which is hogwash. Uh, but that'll, that's a pathetic thing. To see a man allow his uh, wife or and or ex-wife to ruin his ministry and his call of God. And there's other reasons, but to see a man simply run because he doesn't like the message. That's the, one of the most sad things of all. 
but it does describe the mass majority of preachers today. They run from the King James Bible. They'd rather preach out of these perverted, corrupt new versions. They run from churches who take a stand on the King James and they'll run to Laodicean lukewarm uh, churches. Um, they'll, they'll look for job openings for the Laodicean churches where they can pastor goats who don't really desire the Word of God. That's what a lot of these guys do. I started when I was first uh, in the ministry. I just started the ministry. I met a graduate from the Methodist Theological Seminary in Delaware, which is apostate. And uh, he was bragging, basically, about the fact that he took the job as a minister because the, the hours were great, vacations, benefits, 401k, you know, it's piece of cake work, really. Uh, anybody he did, didn't want to deal with, he just sent them off to a psychotherapist or something, you know. And so... <laughs> Uh, that's why today when you go to these churches pastored by these sad Balaams, you get rock concerts and sermonettes that are void of any verse-by-verse Bible teaching. And you get a fake spirituality that is killing not only the people and the churches, killing the whole communities. The church is supposed to be salt and light, and the salt has lost its savor, and the light has gone out. And so even the communities um, are dying. They're those churches are more like cemeteries with open graves rotting and decaying the community instead of being the salt and light they're supposed to be. They should call their churches funeral homes instead of churches. But God's Word is, uh, will still be a witness. Um, like in Worthington, our little church, and there's still little pockets of King James Bible believers. And uh, here, that's the same thing true with Balaam. Uh, Balaam himself, he's a, we're going to see, he's a false, uh, he's a, he's a uh, imposter is, the, I think, the best word for Balaam, the type of false teacher he is. Um, but as long as he re- preaches God's word, it will have an effect on people. And that's why you have false teachers through the years. We've had people, guys that were, we, I mean, I don't want to sound over the top, but we have, I know a guy who's a child molester, and he preached the Bible, and there were people saved under his ministry, and then when he was exposed, they wondered whether or not they were saved. Well, yes, they were saved, and of course, we don't ever want to knowingly sit under somebody like that, but the Word of God is powerful even when it comes out of the Word of, as we've seen in previous studies, uh, uh, mouth of a jackass. So verse 2 says, And Balaam lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And I've seen this with my own eyes with uh, false teachers and frauds. I know they're false teachers and frauds. And yet, once in a while, they'll preach the truth. Paul talked about these guys, and he said, you know, he's, he still rejoiced in the fact that people were getting saved, even if the guy preaching had the wrong motive. And... Um, that's really what we're getting from Balaam here. He's preaching the truth. God's speaking through his mouth, even though uh, he's got the wrong motive and he really doesn't like the message he's preaching. But now I'm going to read through Balaam's prophecy as we pick up here in verse 3. Uh, we'll read through verse 5. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam, the son of Beor, hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, He hath said, which heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the Almighty, falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. I mean, that's a sign of a false 
teacher. I don't believe God moved him to say all that. Um, He's just basically calling attention to himself. And in spite of that, verse 5, he begins, How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel. So that after that uh, ridiculous introduction of himself, we see the prophecy is about Israel. Verses 6 and 7 goes on. As the valleys are they spread forth, as gardens by the river's side, as the trees of lime aloes, which the Lord hath planted, and as cedar trees beside the waters. In other words, very lush and prosperous, these people, Israel. Verse 7, He shall pour out the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. And so that's saying quite a bit. And uh, it's, it, it is pointing, though, indirectly, but ultimately to the future glory of Israel in the coming millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, look at verse 8. God brought him, talking about Israel, forth out of Egypt. That's the Exodus. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. So a couple of points before we move on from this verse. As we've said before, if you see this reference to a unicorn, and you immediately think of my little pony, (laughs) some rainbow horse, you know, that kind of thing. Um, The New Age unicorn I see all the time on book covers and things from New Agers and occultists. If that's what you think of when you hear the word unicorn, then you're, you're way off base and you need to purge your mind of the, this man-made nonsense. And you have to realize that this is a very large, strong creature. And it's never described in the Bible as a cute little white horse with a horn and rainbows. That's just not the Bible use of the word unicorn. Just because people have a face, a false and fake, I took those two words and put them together, a face, a false and fake image of the unicorn means nothing. That's not the Bible unicorn. I mean, the biblical unicorn is a measure of great strength. It has a single horn, that makes it a unicorn, but that doesn't make it a rainbow pony. The strength of a unicorn describes Israel in her glory. It says, He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. So obviously, you need to understand what that is referring to. And this unicorn-like nation, Israel, eats up their enemy nations, and it breaks their bones and pierces them through. I mean, that's not My Little Pony. (laughs) And so we continue with Balaam's prophecy in verse 9. He couched, he lay down as a lion, and as a great lion. Who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. So there's that promise again. The same promise that the anti-Semites and heretics, like uh, guys, some of you King James Bible believers will recognize Tex Mars, cuckoo, Steve, Stephen Anderson, cuckoo, <laughs> Louis Farrakhan, the KKK, the Aryan Nation, Muhammad and Islam, the Nation of Islam, all the other Bible-rejecting fools hate these promises of God to bless the nation of Israel and to curse those who curse him. All the popes and the uh, statements, ex-cathedra and bulls, and bull is a good word for it, from the uh, Roman Catholic Church and the popes and all that, they're cursed. And I won't join them. 
there's plenty of things wrong with Israel. Israel, just like any other nation, has its problems. That's a far cry. For, you can say there's something wrong. You can point out that they need to stop this or you know, stop being pro-choice like they are, stop being pro-Sodom like they are in Tel Aviv, and even Jerusalem now is becoming more and more Sodom-like. In the, during the tribulation, God will refer to Jerusalem as Sodom. Um, and that's sad, but it's not our place to curse them. That's where you draw uh, crossing the line with God. So we pick up now, Balak does not like what he's hearing from Balaam, but he's not heard the worst of it yet, um, or the best of it as far as Israel is concerned. Verses 10 and 11 say, And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he smote his hands together. He's like, Argh! And Balak said unto Balaam, I called thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast altogether blessed them these three times. Verse 11, Therefore now flee thou to thy place. I thought to promote thee unto great honor, but lo, the Lord hath kept thee back from honor. So Balak knows that Balaam's just t saying what God has put in his mouth, but there's it, it, just unreasonable insanity with unbelievers. You can't reason with people like that. And that's how uh, Balak hi is here. Uh, let's continue in verses 12 through uh, 14, because Balak's going to say, I tried to tell you. <laughs> Uh, verse 12, And Balaam said unto Balak, Spake I not also to thy messengers which thou sentest unto me, saying, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandment of the Lord to do either good or bad of mine own mind. But what the Lord saith, that will I speak. But then he changes, he says, And now, behold, I go unto my people, come therefore, and I will advertise thee what this people shall do to thy people in the latter days. Now, um, at this point, it's, it seems like Balaam's about to add insult to injury <laughs> and pour some salt in the wound. And maybe he just can't help himself. He's under the power of God's Spirit at this point, even though he's got a bad heart. Um, but we read his uh, lengthy self-introduction again in verses 15-16. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, he hath said, which he heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. And now with that uh, grand entrance, we now read what ought to be one of the most familiar Bible prophecies in Scripture to the mature Bible student, but I found a lot of people are not even aware of this, or they, they, they don't have a real working knowledge of what we're about to read. And if, it, if it's, that's the case with you, when we read this, highlight it in your Bible. Become familiar. It's a very important uh, prophecy here in verse 17. We read, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. Now this is obvious, or should be, to the born-again believer with the Spirit of God in you, who's familiar with the Word of God. This is a messianic prophecy fulfilled by Jesus. Now a star out of Jacob uh, not only refers to the fact that he's got Jewish DNA, and uh, he's of the right lineage, which Matthew chapter 1 and uh, Luke chapter 3 spell out for us uh, in his genealogies. But then it's a prophetic reference to the star of Bethlehem. And I've heard some guys 
pretend that's not the case, but it's clear that it is. That we identify the Messiah, he's a star out of Jacob. How do we identify him? There's a star. <laughs> um, I believe that the, um, what are a lot of times called Magi, the Bible calls them wise men. I believe they are descendants of those taught by Daniel. Daniel taught them what he was given in Daniel 9, 24-27, the countdown from the uh, commandment of Artaxerxes to build the wall and to rebuild uh, Jerusalem. And uh, from that point, you have a countdown to the exact time that the Messiah is supposed to show up. And then they, uh, I believe Daniel taught them other uh, messianic prophecies, including this one. So they were looking for a star. Yes, a literal star. Not a star like you look out and see in the sky now. A special star. Now, Jeffrey Martis wrote a book. I believe it's called uh, The Star of the King. Or A Star of the King. Uh, where he makes a case for something that I had said. I don't know. I'm not trying to claim I come up with the idea or anything like that. But I had said this years ago in some of our studies that I believe that that star was actually the angel of the Lord. Angels are referred to as stars in the Bible, and I believe that that was Jesus is more. He's omnipresent, omnipotent as well. He's omnipresent. He can be in more places than in any place at all times. He can be in more than one place at one time. So read that book if you want more on that. But that's what I believe Jeffrey Martis makes that case in that book. The star out of Jacob um, refers to literally the star of Bethlehem, and I believe it was Jesus. It also says, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and that refers to the kingship and reign of Messiah in the kingdom age, the scepter being what the king holds. Remember the scepter that uh, Esther, you know, when she would go in to approach uh, the king, if he didn't put the uh, scepter toward her, that she could be killed. <laughs> um, that's because that's where the power is, the scepter. But it's only at his return that Jesus finally fulfills this prophecy. And that prophecy is also told in Isaiah 11, 12 through 14. Listen close. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. He did that before the first coming. He's also doing that here at the time of the second coming. The envy also of Ephraim, as some people pronounce it as Ephraim, I think, shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim, but they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. Now, I hope you kind of grasp the basics and some of the names mentioned there. We're going to see similarity to what Balaam's saying. So just like Isaiah's prophecy, we see Balaam continue in verse 18, And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. Now, Israel will resist the Antichrist. Revelation 12 describes this, where they'll go into the wilderness in hiding for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years by uh, the Jewish calendar, exactly. And they'll ultimately be saved, but they'll hide in the rock city of Petra in Seir. And uh, then verse 19. Uh, out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. Now this is 
uh, all referring to the second coming of Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, nearly 2,500 years after Balaam's prophecy, this is about to take place. Then Balaam continues with his end-time prophecies in verse 20. And when he looked on Amalek, he took up his parable and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his latter end shall be that he perish forever. Now, Deuteronomy 25, 17-19 gives us the short account, but basically what happened was that uh, when the Jews, the Hebrews came out of Egypt, then uh, they were attacked by the Amalekites. And they went to the rear and attacked the weakest and the elderly and that sort of thing. And um, so, uh, if God said that in the land, when they come into the land which the Lord thy God give thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. So um, the Amalekites would continue to attack Israel uh, until God ordered King Saul to destroy them all. And you remember, he didn't obey. And Saul was, um, uh, because of his actions, he was standing against the word of God. God said, destroy them all. He kept Agag alive. Well, Samuel comes, and you read about this in 1 Samuel 15, but Samuel comes and says, what are you doing? <laughs> Eventually then, he executes King Agag, but 500 years after that, a descendant of Agag named Haman the Agagite, whom Josephus called an Amalekite, would attempt and fail at the genocide of the Jewish race. You can read all about this ancient Adolf Hitler in the book of Esther. Um, but we don't have time to get into the depths of that, but that gives you enough information for you to jump in there if you are interested. So whether the Amalekite DNA exists today or the term is in a spiritual sense, the Amalekites will not go into the kingdom of Messiah. And... Um, um, Israel's enemies will be destroyed. Let's read verse 21-22. And he looked on the Kenites and took up his parable and said, Strong is thy dwelling place, and thou puttest thy nest in a rock. So that might be some of the other people who have also dwelt in Petra. Uh, verse 22. Nevertheless, the Kenites shall be wasted until Asher shall carry thee away captive. So that points to Assyria coming down and destroying the Kenites down in Seir and in the area of Petra. But we uh, then wrap it up, verse 23 through 25. And he took up his parable and said, Alas, who shall live when God doeth this? Well, at the return of Christ, when he sets his, his kingdom, uh, only those who have not taken the mark of the beast will survive. And all Israel that remains, which is only one-third that started out at the beginning of the tribulation, will uh, go into the millennial kingdom. Verse 24, And ships shall come from the coast of Chittim, and shall afflict Asher, and shall afflict Eber, and he also shall perish forever. And uh, verse 25 then closes, And Balaam rose up and went and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. Now, <laughs> that was that, right? But it wasn't. Um, we're going to see, we're not told here We'll be told about six chapters later, or six or seven if you count from Numbers 24. We're going to be told something happens between verse 25 here and when we start our next study in chapter uh, chapter 25, verse 1. Something happened. Um, there was 
between Balaam and Balak. There was this secret conspiracy behind the scenes. And, you know, sometimes authors will do that. They'll tell you what happened, and then only later do they tell you what happened. <laughs> that you can see what the result was, but then later you find out what brought that about, what was behind it. And that's the way the Bible handles this particular uh, situation. It's, it's really exciting when you learn it. If it's the first time you hear it, stay with us. Come back next time. Um, we're ending here with this as a cliffhanger. <laughs> um, but you tune in next time. If the Lord leaves us here and doesn't rapture us out, turn, tune in next time and we're going to look. There's passages uh, in uh, 30, chapter 31 of Numbers, Micah 6, uh, verse 5, Revelation 2.14, Jude 11, 2 Peter 2.15-16. These all come together to explain what we're about to see. How that this chapter ends and it looks like it's over, but then in chapter 25 when we come back next week, it's going to be an amazing beginning because all of a sudden it's going to say that Israel abode in Shittim and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And it's uh, like, whoa, what happened? What caused this? And we don't have time, obviously, to go into all those texts and explain it in detail. So we'll leave you with that. And I hope you are enjoying these Bible studies as much as I am. I just find the more I study, the more I love it, the more I want, the more I want.